All right, so we're just going to get started. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Yanina. I'm one of the infectious diseases pharmacists over at Moffitt. And today we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, pneumocystis pneumonia in non-HIV patients. So um, I know we routinely think of this as more of a complication in patients who present with AIDS. Um, it's an AIDS-defining illness, but um, the epidemiology of the disease is actually changing. So you we'll see patients who are HIV negative presenting with PCP and um, there's slight differences in the way these patients present. Um, we don't necessarily think about PCP in these patients um, and therefore it's just something that was interesting for me to, um, you know, to put together as a presentation just to discuss. So the objectives for today's presentation is to describe the epidemiology, acquisition and pathophysiology of PCP we want to identify the risk factors for the disease and actually compare and contrast the presentation and the disease in HIV positive and HIV negative patients, um, as well as look at treatment and prophylaxis um, in both HIV positive and negative patients. So a little bit on the background um, of the infection. So it was first identified in uh, lungs of guinea pigs in 1909, and then again in 1910, um, in some lungs of rats. And then finally, it was in 1952 then, that Otto Jarovecki identified the organism um, as the cause of interstitial pneumonia in malnourished children, therefore why we renamed the organism um, to accurately reflect the person who discovered it in humans. Mm. So it is a potentially life-threatening infection. And prior to the 1980s, was really associated as a rare complication in patients with hematologic malignancies. But um, because of the epidemic um, of AIDS, HIV, after 1980s, it's kind of been associated as a AIDS-defining illness and the most common presentation that we used to see in patients with HIV and AIDS. To complicate things a little more with this organism, it was originally classified as a protozoa, right, because of how it's, um, it exists, it exists in two forms. But then in 1988, based on DNA and genomic sequencing, it was reclassified as a fungi. Um, unlike other funguses, it does not grow in culture, right, and it lacks ergositrol. That's why we really cannot use most of our antifungals um, to treat this organism. It is isolated in virtually every mammal, but it is, has very uh, stringent um, host specificity. So you cannot get your guinea pig's form of PCP. Your form of PCP cannot go to your guinea pig, okay? And very little is actually known about this organism relative to other fungi that we know about, and that's because, again, we can't culture this. If we can't culture it, we can't study it. So we're going to talk a little bit about acquisition and epidemiology of this, but in general, uh, most of us are exposed to this fungus by the age of two to four. Exactly how we get exposed to it is not really known, um, whether it's airborne, whether it's in the environment, both. Um, and what was interesting to me, at least it was not a concept I was familiar with until doing this presentation for the first time, was the idea of colonization with PCP. Um, you know, usually if we're going to look for PCP and we find PCP, we can treat PCP, but it's important to remember that patients can be colonized with it. And again, the rates of colonizations vary in HIV and non-HIV patients. 
So if you had to guess, what percentage of HIV patients are colonized with PCP? Throw a number out there. 75%. So very close, 70, almost 70% 70 of HIV patients are colonized with PCP, um, where not HIV patients are about 40%. And then that further subdivides whether they're immunosuppressed or not. But um, immunosuppressed HIV-negative patients can be up to 40% colonized with PCP. And what does it mean to be colonized? So who cares, right? But the issue is that you are at risk for developing, developing PCP if you're colonized with the organism, as well as you can serve as a reservoir for transmission of the disease. So that was another interesting thing for me when, that I learned, transmission of the disease. Well, I thought you reactivated your own latent infection, right? When we think about PCP, well, wrong, right? The latency is actually very short for this um, organism. It's less than one year. So there's growing evidence, actually, that most of the cases are de novo acquisition or person-to-person -person, um, transmission. Dr. Tony. <laughs> So these are two nice uh, case descriptions, a case series describing, one was an HIV positive patients with two distinct episodes of pneumocystis, and actually then genetically typing the organism, it was found that actually there are two different organisms that, these pa that each of the patients presented with. So basically showing this is not a reactivation of your own infection, but actually just reinfection with a new organism. Right, and then in a non-HIV patient population, this was seen in a renal transplant um, outpatient unit dialysis center where they had 11 patients who contracted PCP, and then they went ahead and like genotyped them and molecularly typed them and found that nine out of the 11 patients had identical strains, um, found patient zero, and it was actually um, linked to airborne transmission. So are we good? Are we okay? Yeah. So with this information, what would you say from an infection control standpoint? Do you want to take any special precautions, isolation in your PCP-positive patients? Anything, would you, do, do, would you do anything differently knowing this? Yes, no, maybe. Who says yes? Who says no? Yeah, and the infection control pe people agree. So you just use standard precautions. There's no difference. Um, you know, one of the recommendations is, well, don't put your immunosuppressed patient in a room with someone who's, who has PCP, right? Um, be a non-issue at Moffitt because we, all, we have only single patient rooms where it may be an issue where you have four patients to a room or two patients to a room. So don't cohabitate your PCP-positive patient with an immunosuppressed PCP-negative patient. So we talked about colonization, but then the big question becomes what needs to happen for this infection to go from just colonization or just being, you know, kind of hanging out there to like a rip-roaring, disease-causing infection, right? Isn't that cute? <laughs> 
So just looking a little bit at the immune system and the role of PCP, it's actually kind of a complex um, series of interactions that occur. Um, you need a you need your cellular immunity in order to clear this organism. And so the interaction is between your CD4 lymphocytes and alveolar macrophages. And basically once you're um, exposed to the organism, the idea is that your body is able to clear it, right? And it doesn't allow the active um, replication of the organism for it to cause an infection. Well, now if you're missing or lacking your cellular immunity or um, there's impairment in some of the CD4 lymphocytes or other factors, you now inhale this organism, um, they bind to alveolar epithelium, and you are attracting alveolar macrophages, but they're deficient in your CD4 T lymphocytes, right? Now you can't eradicate the organism, and the organism just replicates. And this uncontrolled replication actually causes multiple cascades to be activated, such as the release of TNF-alpha cytokine release, um, which ultimately causes um, increased alveolar capillary permeability, and there's overwhelming inflammatory damage response. You have leaky lungs and then respiratory failure and impaired gas exchange, and then your patient gets intubated. And so um, it's all about getting that organism cleared. Thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to sit next to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so in our HIV positive patients, you know, we know that the risk factors, the predisposition to developing PCP is a slow CD4 count or, or depletion of your um, CD4 T lymphocytes, so a count less than 200. But HIV-negative patients, it's not as clear-cut. So do you think you can get PCP if your CD4 count is less than, is more than 200 in HIV-negative patients? Yeah, absolutely. And um, some of the uh, mechanism is basically there's an alteration of the immune system and the depletion of your CD4 by different mechanisms, right? So not necessarily maybe the amount, but actually function of your T lymphocytes. So in HIV-negative patients, who's at risk, right? So it's going to depend on your disease state that you have and the treatment that you're getting for that disease. So not all patients at Moffitt are at the same risk, right? We definitely have patients who are at higher risk. You have patients who don't have malignancies who are at risk because of treatments that they get. Uh, but looking in a general picture, patients with malignancies, hematologic more so than solid tumors, uh, patients who get a transplant, whether it's solid organ or stem cell transplant. Um, some patients with connective tissue disorders and others like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and we're going to predominantly focus on these two. Okay. So even though we routinely think of our AML patients as the most immunosuppressed from the chemo that they get, in terms of risk of PCP, they're not your highest risk patients. It's actually patients with ALL more so than with AML. Um, as well as your patients with lymphomas. And that has to do primarily with the type of therapy they receive for their disease, right? So what do they get a lot of, both of these patients? I know I have lymphomas, are like it's one little disease, but in general. Yeah, but we, what, what specifically? <laughs> they get lots of steroids, right? More so than any other patients. Um, and also with ALL, right, it's their 
lymphoid, not myeloid cells that are affected, so at baseline they're at higher risk. Patients who get a stem cell transplant for these disorders are then at a higher risk. And so looking at a retrospective review from Sloan, um, they looked at 80 episodes of PCP in this, from 1990 to 2003 and actually found that 95% of their patients, of their cases, were either a hemolignancy patient or a patient with a stem cell transplant, right? So if you combine the two, it's about 95% of the entire cohort. So some regimens have been definitely... Um, So some regimens have definitely been uh, associated with an increased risk for PCP. Um, they have an established risk, and we kind of know about this. So your corticosteroids, patients receiving alemtuzumab, and patients receiving purine analogs, such as fludarabine. Regimens with potential or possible risks um, include methotrexate and rituximab. And so I put this here only for, um, just so you can see, if you Google or try to PubMed a case report, you will find that anything can be associated with anything. So just because you're getting chemo or just an agent that's been you know, shown that perhaps there is a case report of someone developing PCP while on this agent, they're not commonly associated with as, or high risk for this disease. And so talking a little bit about rituximab, um, this question kind of comes up frequently, and that's why I wanted to just talk about it specifically. There was actually a study um, in 2013 just looking at a point prevalence of pneumocystis in patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma who get RCHOP to see whether or not this is a group of patients that needs to be routinely prophylaxed with PCP, for PCP. So for RCHOP, if you don't know what it is like I don't, I like to put it up there. These are patients who are receiving a cycle every three weeks with rituximab, cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, mincristin, and prednisolone. And authors had 713 patients, and they actually showed an incidence of PCP in this patient group of about 4.5%. That's including both definitive and probable cases. <clears throat> and a prevalence of 2% in incidence of definitive disease. So interestingly enough, they did show that majority of the patients who developed PCP developed it after the fourth cycle of the chemotherapy, but when looking at overall prevalence in less than four cycles or more than four cycles, the difference was not statistically significantly different, right? So the conclusion was that it's really not a frequent enough complication to routinely recommend uh, prophylaxis. And we'll a little bit further on the presentation discuss what is that magic threshold number that you need to have an incidence of prevalence of before you can routinely recommend uh, PCP prophylaxis. Now looking at your solid organ transplant, it is definitely a critical issue in this patient population and these are the different rates that are reported based on the organ that you have transplanted. and. I think it's fair to say that it's driven by how much immunosuppression you have, right? So your more immunosuppressed organs get more risk of PCP. And the highest period for, um, or the highest risk period is during the first six months post-transplant. And that's when we use steroids, correct? So in your solid tumors, you know, we did say that hemolignancy and transplant was gonna be your highest risk. But there are some solid tumor patients that may have an increased risk of PCP. <clears throat> I 
primarily are going to be your either primary CNS malignancies or metastatic brain tumors. And again, that's because what do we get? The, right, right, it's the treatment. Um, and then, yeah, so it's radiotherapy and therapy for it. In terms of connective tissue disorders, um, <clears throat> the reported rate is relatively low. Um, routinely prophylaxis is not recommended. We'll look at some of the um, expert recommendation or expert opinions on who should get recommendations or who should get prophylaxis in these connective tissue disorders. The true rate of PCP may be very different uh, for rheumatoid arthritis than we currently have. Um, right now, the reported rate is 0.02%, but this is all data prior to 2000 when the use of biologics became you know, really widely used. So uh, going forward, it'd be nice to see. So we're going on about 20 years of using these biologics routinely in practice, so it'd be nice to see what is the true rate of PCP. Um, in these patients who are receiving these biologics for um, rheumatoid arthritis. And we also get biologics for IBD patients, but the rate is actually really, really low and the incidence is very low for PCP. And it's thought because actually these patients don't tend to have pre-existing lung conditions, right? Their problems are all in the gut, more so than their lungs. But if you had to pick one culprit or the common problem, <laughs> it's steroids. You just can't go wrong with steroids, right? Whether it's for your hemalignancies, for your solid tumors, transplant, it all seems that steroids definitely play a role in, as a risk factor for PCP and HIV negative patients. I do want to emphasize that just steroids by themselves are not enough to predispose patients to PCP. So for all of you that have seen a patient with COPD exacerbation, or those that come to your ER at least, you know, every other month, how many of them have PCP or do you routinely prophylax for PCP? None, right? So it is in the literature, at least you'll find that the, the risk seems to, um, that you need not just to be on steroids, but you need to really have a malignancy uh, or be on another cytotoxic agent in addition to corticosteroids. So just being on X amount of mg per kg of steroids is not enough to say that this patient is at risk for PCP. And we all like numbers, right? So what is this magic number, right? So routinely we say 20 milligrams of PRED daily for at least four weeks or longer. That is not to say that patients on lower doses or shorter durations and higher doses or pulse doses um, can't develop PCP, but this seems to be that magic, oh my God, it's more than 20 milligrams of Preto equivalent. One thing to keep in mind that there's a number of um, case series describing patients developing PCP after stopping steroids um, and not at the time of steroids. And we'll discuss what the proposed mechanism for that is. So you all know of IRIS, have heard of IRIS when we're talking about HIV patients, right? So you give them their um, combination antiretroviral therapy and all of a sudden they come back with IRIS and PCP. Well, same idea with withdrawal of steroids, right? They're, we're immunosuppressed, now you're taking away their immunosuppression and now they're able to reactivate or actually have a response towards um, the fungus. So it's kind of, it's a sort of IRIS just in reverse, you're inducing it by removing the corticosteroids.
I'm dating myself, <laughs> I know, but um, so talking, I just wanted to compare this organism for HIV positive and HIV negative patients because um, when I think of PCP, I have a certain idea in my head or presentation how these patients should present. And interestingly enough, patients who don't have HIV present quite differently than patients who do have HIV um, with PCP pneumonia. So in our HIV positive patients, we <laughs> think of PCP as a subacute presentation or almost a chronic presentation over weeks, right? They're getting more short of breath. Where in our HIV negative patients, actually a very quick onset and a much faster deterioration to respiratory failures in our HIV negative patients. Um, the respiratory insufficiency is also greater. Now, interestingly enough, the ease of diagnosis is more difficult in HIV negative patients because if you look, the, the burden of the organism or how much fungi is actually in their lungs is less, right? So more difficult to get them to do, produce a sputum and to actually stain the sputum. Uh, but on the flip side, HIV-negative patients have a more inflammatory response. Their BAL tends to have more neutrophils in it when you do the bronch on these patients. So again, kind of showing that the severity of the disease is dictated not by how much of the bug you have, but what is your body's response to the bug. And a much higher mortality. So any guesses why the mortality is so much higher? in HIV negative patients. Exactly, probably because we don't think about it as often as if you see an AIDS patient with ground glass on, you know, on chest x-ray, you're like, oh, it has to be PCP, where in some of these patients, oh, he's too fast, too sick to be for this to be PCP. Exactly. So it's how, how quickly they deteriorate and because we don't think about necessarily as being the first line. Um, so interesting, about 60% mortality, depending on where you read. So in terms of imaging and radiography, we have our classic findings that we associate with PCP, but then that'd be too easy. Um, patients who are HIV negative may not necessarily present with your typical or classic clinical findings on x-ray or, uh, you know, or CT of the chest. Um, so I think for just for time's sake, we can probably skip over this, but your classic findings, you're looking for bilateral diffuse ground glass opacities, right, on your chest x-ray in these <coughs> patients. Um, you may also see, um, you know, some cysts that's actually kind of common. And these are your typical presentations, right? Whether you, there's a pneumothorax associated with it, kind of your butterfly kind of distribution, fluffy, you know, your fluffy infiltrates. Now, when you look for high residency CT scans, um, usually it's, or probably be done in patients that have a negative chest x-ray where you're suspecting they still have PCP because they are more sensitive. And the hallmark findings are ground glass attenuation in these patients. And so again, your classic um, chest CT of an HIV positive patient who's 32 coming in with PCP pneumonia. Well, what about patients who don't have HIV? Do their CT scans look the same? Well, sometimes. So in about 50% of the cases, they will have your classic presentations of what you expect <laughs> to see on the CT scan. Um, 
interestingly enough, patients who are getting rheumatological or were getting biological agents for rheumatoid arthritis did not frequently present with your typical signs. Um, so and the differences were really attributable to, uh, or the authors attribute the differences to your immune response and how your body is responding to the organism. And then kind of just looking, I know everyone's visual, so just kind of looking at these different CT scans. So you have four different patients with four different underlying immune deficiencies. One is HIV, one is a rheumatoid arthritis, one is a lymphoma patient um, that are presenting all, and one is a patient getting corticosteroids who also has a malignancy, all presenting with different kind of findings on the CT scan. They just all look bad. <laughs> so if you had to put it into one, one word, it's just bad. So in terms of diagnosing the you know, PCP in patients, of course, ideally, or the gold standard, we would like a microscopic identification of the organism. And remember, we said we cannot culture this, right? If you cannot culture this, then what do you want to, then how do you prove that the patient has this? We want to stain it, right? Some, some kind of stain. So we'll get to all different types <laughs> of stains, but first you need a sample, right? So if your patient can cough, see if you can get an induced sputum on the patients. The least invasive way of trying to get a sample, hypertonic saline, and then just induce the sputum. You can get a BAL. Um, I don't think anyone's ever gone for a lung biopsy to try to prove a diagnosis of PCP. Remember, it comes in, this organism exists in two different forms, and your different stains um, pick up different forms of the organism. So you have, for your trophic form, you have your, your gypsum stains. Um, for your cystic form, that's where you have your uh, crystal violet or the silver stain. But I think most institutions have gone to uh, fluorescent antibody staining, which actually picks up both of the forms of the organism. Not surprisingly, there's a PCR available as well, uh, both qualitative and quantitative PCRs. Um, they could be done on both like sputums as well as blood. Um, I don't think they're routinely used because the issue has been, how do you A, differentiate colonization from um, actually truly an infection? What are the cutoffs? And so very sensitive, but I don't know if the data is out there for exactly you know for specificity of the um, of the test. So, do you know whether other institutions are using or any place that's using PCP we PCRs? Just notified that uh, our, our lab is going to have that test available. Excellent. Obviously, there's some criteria. I wouldn't want to say that everybody. Very interesting. What do you guys use? Remind me. Oh, we okay. use the fluorescent antibody stains. So. Interesting. Well, let us know how that goes. I'm excited to. I haven't ordered it yet. <laughs> you can try, and then I'll be canceling. Oh, yeah. Well, we're supposed to participate with in formation of the criteria. Yeah, right now you only have to make three phone calls and send five emails to get a silver stain or a No, I think, I think they were talking about PCR. Yeah, I, maybe I'm wrong. I was just talking about, about the <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
But I know that also the one of the betas were Cam Yes. So for ser serological diagnosis, I know in our HIV positive patients, we uh, look at elevated LDHs as one of the markers. Do you think they're very useful at Moffitt or in Moffitt patients? No, because they have plenty of other reasons to have an, uh, exactly, elevated LDH levels. But it is a serological marker that you can use um, because, again, patients with solid tumors probably should not have very elevated LDH levels. But yet they're not going to have PCP as often. Um, you know, your 1,3 beta D-glucan is another test. Originally was developed for a diagnosis of deep-seated mycoses. It is not uh, specific to pneumocystis, right, because you can also find it on the cell walls of candida and aspergillus. Other issues with this test is that um, you can get false positive results, but the other um, bigger problem is what is a diagnostic cutoff value of significance, right? Um, some authors report a value of 31 to be clinically significant, others 23, yet other authors say 60. Um, so if you're going to be using this test, I think it's important for your institution to validate what your cutoffs are going to be or, or the test that you're using to make sure whatever cutoffs they're using to be as um, clinically significant. All right, now talking about treatment um, for HIV positive and HIV negative patients, first line therapy is um, sulfatrimethoprim, whether it's for mild, moderate, or severe disease. So the dose that we're routinely used to is 15 to 20 milligrams per kilo per day of the trimethoprim portion divided into you know, Q6 or Q8 hours. Not surprisingly, this is not based on randomized controlled trials. It was kind of just like, hey, this is what we're going to do. There's some retrospective studies in HIV patients showing that if your patients can't tolerate the higher dose going down to 10 mg per kg per day may be okay. And most recently, this was an antimicrobial agent in chemotherapy just a couple of months ago, looking specifically at efficacy and toxicity of low-dose Bactrim in HIV-negative patients, and they divided their patients into two groups. They were basically your conventional or traditional dosing, that's 15 to 20 mg per kg, and anyone who got less than that was considered to be a low-dose group. Um, all the doses were adjusted for renal function, and then comparing the two groups, um, it appeared that the low, again, not very large numbers, but something, again, and it is retrospective, and you know, retrospective data, but it just seems that between the two groups, there was no uh, mortality difference whether you use the 15 mix per kg or less than 15 mix per kg. Um, whether there was 90-day um, cost-specific mortality was also the same. So just something to keep in mind. Not necessarily should you be recommending it for everyone, but in case your patients cannot tolerate the higher dose, it may be an option. Alternatively, for moderate severe disease, we're going to use Pantam. Um, it's as effective as Bactrim. It, it is the most studied one, but it does have a higher rate of adverse effects, and that's why we don't like to necessarily go to IV pentamidine. Um, to minimize some of the side effects, some clinicians will decrease the dose to 3 milligrams per kilo. Um, just remember, this is a drug that's run over at least one hour because of the side effects, whether it's arrhythmias or um, hyper, hypoglycemia, et cetera. <coughs> we don't, but there are, for example, all children's is their preferred prophylaxis is IV Pantam. 
And so some institutions do um, keep it, we do not. Um, other options that I think we're more familiar with would be something like high dose clindamycin with uh, primaquin. You ideally would want a G6PD level, but shouldn't stop anyone. Think from starting it if your patient's dying. <laughs> we're talking about moderate, severe PCP here. Mm. For mild, moderate disease, um, atovacone, even though it's less effective than Bactrim, is an option for mild disease. I don't know why the dose is 750 milligram twice a day for treatment or 1500 once a day for prophylaxis. I have no idea. Um, that's how it's been studied. Maybe, Maybe or yeah, I and you know all your other options include um, Dapsum plus trimethoprim or Clinda plus Primaquin. Treatment duration. Everybody's comfortable with our HIV positive patients. We say three weeks. And that actually comes from a randomized trial comparing two weeks to three weeks with higher relapses in patients getting only two weeks of therapy. Now, for our HIV negative patients, it's very easy to try to extrapolate and say, well, we just do three weeks, right? But if you look actually at the guidelines, there's some European guidelines that were published in 2016. The recommendation is actually two weeks with an option to continue to three weeks if your patients were slow to respond, higher burden, super sick, um, you know, that's an option, but it's not a automatic. Everyone kind of needs three weeks off the get-go. So the next thing we're gonna talk about is corticosteroids, right? Um, in our HIV-positive patients, we know that once you start therapy in the first three to five days, your patients may actually get worse before they get better. Um, and the hypothesis behind that is kind of, you know, you're killing the microorganism, there's all this pulmonary inflammation, and now you're getting sicker before you're getting better. Um, there was a randomized, not just one, but a number of randomized controlled trials actually looking whether adjuvant corticosteroids improve mortality in these patients, and they did. Um, so now it's the standard of care, right? Within the first three days of therapy, patients who meet criteria are gonna get started on steroids. So do we know what the criteria is? Right. And all these patients within the first 72 hours of therapy should be started on steroids. Um, if it's been more than 72 hours, are we going to start them? Probably. Do we know if it helps? I don't know. Um, but it's hard not to start these patients if they get super sick. And the steroid dose? Anyone? I can tell you it's not 250Q6 of methyl pred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's actually not that high. It's 40 BID for five days, 40 daily, then 20 daily um, to finish off. Remember, methyl pred to pred is not one-to-one, -one, right, if you're going to convert. Um, so it's 75% of the dose. But routinely, people kind of just do a one-to-one, -one, but it's not a one-to-one. So that was for our HIV positive patients, but what about in our HIV negative patients? Well, fortunately there's no randomized control trials, but all the retrospective studies are actually conflicting with the results um, compared to what you see in our um, HIV positive patients. They actually don't recommend routine use of corticosteroids. A, because most of these patients have been on steroids beforehand, and that's why they developed the disease. And remember, the um, it just they don't have that much organism that dies, right? Because it was the or the burden of the organism that is thought to lead to the 
worse outcomes in the first three days. There's a retrospective review um, from 2011 that looked at this question, looking at outcomes of moderate to severe pneumocystis pneumonia treatment with adjuvant steroids. Um, and just to give you a summary um, of the results, I'm just going to skip over some of this stuff. Um, about you know, 70% of their patients actually received corticosteroids, and they found no difference in respiratory failure, 30-day mortality, 90-day mortality, um, as well as their survival analysis was no different. So it is not routinely recommended to give steroids. It could be reassessed on an individual basis, but again, showing that even though it's the same disease, these patients don't necessarily present the same. So in terms of prophylaxis is the next part we're going to discuss. Um, for HIV-positive patients, when do we start prophylaxis? CD4 count less than, and continue it until? Right, okay, so we, we HIV patients, we kind of know. This unfortunately doesn't work very well for HIV-negative patients. Like we said, our patients can develop PCP despite of their CD4 counts. So there are established recommendations for patients who have had solid organ transplant, bone marrow transplant, sorry, and um, ALL and certain other therapies. But for other things, it's a lot of uh, expert opinion or with limited consensus. But this was an interesting review done um, in 2007. It's an analysis looking at uh, number needed to treat versus number needed to harm and what is the incident rate before recommendations of um, therapy for PCP are needed. So if you look, for example, for someone with rheumatoid arthritis, you would need to treat 1,099 patients or prophylax 1,099 patients to prevent a single case of PCP, right? Versus someone who has an um, allogeneic bone marrow transplant where you'd have to prophylax 11 patients to prevent a single case. This um, meta-analysis actually recommended routine prophylaxis anytime rates of 3.5% or greater in a given patient population. But at, since then, there was a Cochrane review done in 2014 that reassessed this, da this data again um, and actually recommended that a baseline rate of 6.2% serve as a cutoff. So if the incident rate of 6% or greater in a patient population is reported, um, then prophylaxis should be um, initiated. And that is about 19 patients that you would need to prophylax to prevent a single case of PCP. So. And some may say prophylaxing 1,000 patients is okay to prevent one case, but the latest Cochrane review says it's been 19 patients. In terms of uh, when do we start to prophylax, and for allo uh, BMT patients, we start on engraftment, usually day plus 28 or day plus 30, um, or post-engraftment, right? Um, and you continue for at least a year or longer, as long as you're in immunosuppression, and it's going to be longer. Um, for solid organ transplant, um, you start right after transplant, and it varies by organ and can be lifelong for some of these organs. For ALL, um, you start a treatment and continue until the therapy is over, which again can get kind of hard because sometimes they get drugs that interact with, with Bactrim and then we have to stop them and start them. Um, for primary immunodeficiencies, so if you have severe combined immunodeficiency, idiopathic CD4, T lymphocytopenia, or hyper IgM syndrome, prophylaxis is recommended. 
anyone who's receiving alemtuzumab for a minimum of two months after therapy and until CD4 count is greater than 200. Now, if they're getting steroids um, plus another um, immunosuppressant, and anyone who's getting uh, temozolomide plus radiation therapy, and there's a specific protocol actually for these primary CNS um, brain tumors that we see that will get PCP prophylaxis. Now for other drugs or other disease states, um, there's some, some recommendations out there, but again, I just want to point out that they're all expert opinion and they will vary from institution to institution, from guidelines to guidelines. Um, so use of purine analogs such as fludarabine or another T-cell depleting agent should um, you know, probably be prophylaxed. We do routinely prophylax a Moffitt if you get a fludarabine-based um, conditioning regimen for whatever chemo you're getting. Uh, a combination of immunosuppressive drugs such as a TNF-alpha inhibitor with high-dose glucocorticoids. Um, Wagner's granulomatosis if you're getting like high-dose glucocorticoids with cyclophosphamide or methotrexate. Um, if you're for polymyositis, if you already have pulmonary fibrosis and getting glucocorticoids even as uh, monotherapy. <laughs> for rheumatoid arthritis, actually, um, the risk seems to be too low to make any kind of recommendations for prophylaxis. Now, in terms of drugs of choice, what's our drug of <laughs> choice for PCP prophylaxis in HIV-positive patients? And what dose? Right, so I, it's, at least from, from what I, or we've been taught, it's always been double strength if they can tolerate it, single strength, even though they're both A1 recommendation, then everything after that is a B1 um, or lower recommendation. So yes, um, double strength or single strength daily of Bactrim. For HIV negative patients, what's interesting is all of the Bectrum regimens kind of hold the same strength of recommendation. So the study is actually looking at three times a day dosing, <laughs> or three times a week dosing, excuse me, compared to the once daily dosing, seem to be as effective in this patient population with less side effects. We tend to recommend daily dosing for a number of reasons. One, compliance. I can't remember to take something every day. It's really hard to remember to take something Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? Um, and also, if your patient's toxopositive, right, some of your transplant patients, for your positive serologies, you'd want the daily regimen over the three times per week regimen. Some of the things you won't see in HIV positive patients, they're not in the guidelines, are things like Clinda plus Primaquin or uh, Paramethamine with uh, Sulfadoxine, which is not anything that I've ever seen, but it's out there. There are recommendations. Um, people do use, we use a lot of Pentamidine NEBS over at Moffitt. It's not as highly recommended in our HIV patients because of risk for lower respiratory infections with PCP. All right, and so just to wrap this all together, so pneumocystis um, identified as a cause of interstitial pneumonia in malnourished infants in 1952. We know HIV is a risk factor, a low CD4 count in HIV is a risk factor for the disease, but in HIV-negative patients um, who are at risk tend to be those with hematologic malignancies or transplant. There's definitely some differences in how these patients present and how 
They respond in duration of therapy. So the treatment durations um, for HIV positive patients tend to be a little bit longer with 21 days versus a 14 day course that may be acceptable for HIV negative patients. Um, adjuvant corticosteroids are not routinely recommended in HIV negative patients with PCP. For primary prophylaxis, um, with our HIV patients, it's low CD4 count, and anyone who's getting an allo solid organ transplant, ALL, in our HIV negative patients. And remember, um, there's lack of randomized controlled trials um, assessing or addressing issues in PCP and HIV negative patients. The majority of the data is going to be from retrospective studies, so take that with a grain of salt. And I will now open it up to any questions. <laughs> All right. Thank you.